no one gets to choose their parents, we all inherit a story, like it or not. But we can choose what to do with that story. I'm Mike Joseph. The story my parents gave me was full of life and loss, wars, genocide and ethnic cleansing. What should I do with that legacy? What would you do? I was 50 before I did anything at all. Welcome to Keys, a troubled inheritance. I'm a journalist and historian. I've published and spoken about the Holocaust and how earlier genocides of the Herero and Armenian peoples informed both the perpetrators and the victims of the Holocaust. But here is a story about my own family and my years of investigating what was done to them and what they did. It is the most compelling story I've ever worked on, but should I even be doing it? Is it right to explore painful family memories in public? And if that breaks rules, here's some more rule-breaking. My story brings together the Holocaust and the Palestinian Nakba. That tests the boundaries of what is permitted to be said these days. Can you do justice to the enormity of the Holocaust and also the fact that it was survivors of the Holocaust who created new victims in Palestine. No surprise that there have been attempts to suppress this story. So, to justify this narrative, maybe it's not enough just to reveal the truth. Perhaps it also needs the inevitability of inheritance, a family inheritance. In this serial documentary, you will hear my family and others speaking their testimony in 30 years of recordings and a century of letters. We'll hear them in their own voices and through interpreters, and also newly performed for this series. This is a long and winding tale, so we'll now have a first glance at the story just to hear some of the many voices, languages, questions and dramas. Both of them were killed. Nobody actually knows what is the right thing to do. My grandfather was Israel Gold. He fought for Germany in the First World War, was decorated, returned to Leipzig in 1918 to marry Sophie, start a family and a one-man fur trading business. His suppliers, partners and customers were Germans, Jews, Poles, Russians, Ukrainians, Czech and, in time, Nazis. He managed to feed his growing family and even survive the Nazi boycott of Jews that started in 1933. Well, now it's 1935. Hitler's been in power two years and Israel Gold writes to his brother, who has already emigrated to Palestine. Our relations with the Arabs. Try getting along in peace and friendship. It's likely to be important. It would be fine to communicate and to live in peace together with this similar race of people in future. His ideas on life as a Jewish settler in an Arab land were obviously formed in Europe, where every day he dealt with Christians and Jews, social democrats and Nazis, speaking three or four languages. And already he was teaching himself Hebrew, English and Arabic. He was even teaching himself Arabic. I found the dictionary that he had. My mother, Lily, 
remembering her father. Our position is that Zionism and our country's expansion and flourishing will give us a spiritual home, especially for the young. Palestine is the only hope. On a noisy recording I made in 1995, Lily recalls how as a teenage girl she nagged her parents to let her emigrate to Palestine. But the family was not ready to go and she was too young to go alone. If you get the opportunity to buy a cheap piece of land near to the mountains, please let me know in order to buy land for our children. I'd like to stay here in our house as long as possible. That house he wanted to stay in was an apartment block he managed to buy in the 1920s and moved in with his family in 1933, just as Hitler came to power. To own your own home and have rent income from six or seven tenants, well, that was security in insecure times. But in September 1935, Nazi Germany passed the Nuremberg Laws, declaring race war on the Jews. I changed my mind. I don't see any case for struggling so hard now, especially if I can't earn enough to live off. We live here very well, we eat very well and live together with all people in peace. And nevertheless, we are not happy people. Two weeks ago, I applied to the Palestine office to transfer my little fortune to Eretz Israel and emigrate there. After the sale of the house, we would probably have 30,000 marks. I'd like to trade in hardware, tools, dishes, etc., and to deliver to houses or kibbutzim. I would actually prefer to become a farmer, but sometime the girls will leave home. We are 39 and 41 years old soon, and in a couple of years, we could have difficulties coping with farming alone. Besides, we are exhausted city dwellers, and it wouldn't be easy for us to spend our further lifetime alone. And then they had the shattering news that they could only take a very small amount of capital with them. We had been tied to that house, which was worth a great deal more than that. And if my father had sold it, he could not have taken the postage with him. And he could have taken, I think he said, a lorry and, and personal belongings, that's all. It's four, four children, and he, my grandmother lived with us by that time, with a family of seven to support. He felt he couldn't go through with that. Now, it was the winter of 1936-7, and they're still in Germany. I still don't know what I'm going to do in the future. It's hard to decide finishing life and business here. I'd like to wait until the children have grown up and have finished their studies. Nobody actually knows what is the right thing to do. In October 1938, Dorothea, their youngest child, had her 10th birthday. First visitors that morning were two policemen with an official notice. Sie haben das Reichsgebiet sofort zu verlassen. Ich verbiete Ihnen, you must leave the German Reich immediately. I forbid you, without further permission, to return. My mother Lily was 18, suddenly expelled from Germany with her sisters, brother and their parents. We were absolutely stunned and, and, and horrified. Pitch dark and people were driven there like wild animals, with SS on both sides, with sticks and guns. My aunt Rose, only 16 in 1938, watched 
as SS men attacked my grandfather. To see him being insulted like that and maltreated, that was something absolutely terrible to me. From that time on, he really suffered. Soon they would be separated forever from their parents. I had one or two more days with my parents. I don't remember very much. It was also hectic. So fraught with the problems and emotion. And, and I, I just remember parents taking us both to the station one night for the train to England. I remember my parents as if it was yesterday standing there saying goodbye. There were no tears, no, no emotion, but... You know, I remember my parents' words verbatim. And uh, I don't want to repeat those. My daughter, Asha, today. You know, the times that I was around her or in her house, I have that sensation of somebody miserable, somebody with a story and somebody with a lot of anger. I'm quite struck when you say anger. Uh, that was the main, the main vibe I got from her. I think. Really. Which makes it sound, <laughs> it makes it sound really negative. It's not she was ever, she was never angry with me. She seemed angry with her lot in life. She had a lot to be angry about. People who survived the Holocaust very frequently don't talk about it, and maybe only late in life, maybe a change of generation, maybe grandchildren come along, and only finally then do they feel able to talk about it. It wasn't like that at home when I was a kid. Both mm -hmm. my parents, and Lily in particular, could never be silent about it. She talked, she remembered, she shared. It was an endless outpouring of memory and story. Parting from my parents, there was still some hope that we would meet again. But, uh, I mean, it was such a long, drawn-out period of uh, worry and uncertainty and not knowing, you see. The pain just went on and on and on. And one had to cope with everyday life and try and survive uh, all day long and then in between, you would uh, suddenly think, oh, yeah, what, what are they doing? Where are they? How are they? Lily was a refugee in the Blitz in London. Her family were refugees in what was Poland, when in 1938 they were expelled from Germany. But with the outbreak of war in 1939, it became the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine. For the moment, they were safe from the Nazis. Lily and her family even managed to send and receive some precious letters. How long would that last? Right now, as I speak these words, we're waiting to hear if Ukraine is about to be invaded. That's what Lily was doing in 1941. It was one summer morning. It was, I think, in June 1941. I heard it on the radio in the morning, just as I was going out to go to work. And I, I walked down that street. It was a beautiful street on a hill overlooking the Thames and Reading in the distance and high trees on both sides. And I was going down the hill towards the office, uh, the street where the office was. And I was actually reeling with shock because I knew that this was going to be the end of them. Once the Germans had attacked there, I knew that that was the end. No more letters, no more news. 
Nazi Germany overran Ukraine, unleashing genocide from Estonia to Greece, France to Ukraine. Lily was on her own. Supported by Quakers in Reading and the refugee community in Birmingham, slowly she started to build a new life. With war at its peak, she met and married my father, a Jewish refugee from Munich. I was born a few months after Allied victory, but Lily did not feel victorious. A feeling of guilt that I should have got engaged when I did and married when I did, wondering whether they were still alive or whether they were perhaps just being killed at the time. Or who knows? There's no telling. I think, God, what was I doing? What were they doing at the time? Well, there was this festive table and, you know, people being happy. I can't forgive myself for that. I've dreamt of them many times and imagined all kinds of things whenever I hear about the atrocities that were done. I think, oh, God, was it them? The events in Eastern Europe, you know, when the Nazis first came in, how they took people and and murdered them wholesale. And I've never found out what happened to my family, so you can imagine what, what thoughts go through your mind. This is the field of Lily's worst fears. October the 12th, 1941, was celebrated by the Nazi SS as Stanislaver Blutsontag. Stanislavov, Bloody Sunday. On this day, in this field, they started the murder of the entire Jewish population of the Ukrainian city of Stanislavov. The day started with 20,000 Jews driven out of their homes. That's two-thirds of the Jewish community. Marched through the city to this cemetery field. It was October 1941. Hmm. They took my grandmother. We lived then on Batarego. They took my grandmother. I remember how they walked them on Batarego Street going here. Hmm. 65 years to the day, I'm at this field, and so is Henrik Luft, 11 years old, when he survived the massacre that killed my mother's family. I was hiding. Thousands of people were walked here. I know that nobody came back. There were three big pits dug and uh, the people were brought to, to the uh, brinks of these pits at this very place where we are now standing. The machine gunners, they shot and the people were just falling into the pits. The shooting uh, lasted from morning till the very evening. Kruger was uh, the, uh, the organizer of this action. Through my interpreter, Svetlana, the rabbi, describes this day in 1941 when Hans Kruger, the SS captain with an ordinary name and an extraordinary eight-year career of mass murder, led a few German policemen and many more local helpers to launch the Holocaust in this region. By nightfall, 12,000 people were machine-gunned into the pits, which continued to heave with the bodies of those not yet dead. The rest were released, some to be crushed at the narrow cemetery gates, others to return to homes already seized by Poles and Ukrainians. 
And there were 2,000 Ukrainian police. There was a lot of screaming. People want to leave. So for the killers, it was uh, it, they were enjoying. It was an enjoyment. They were uh, merrymaking. After the war, some of the remnants of the Stanislavov community gathered in Tel Aviv, the Jewish city in British Palestine, to record and publish their experiences, with their memories still raw. Their book of testimony is brutal. That's where I learnt of the Bloody Sunday Massacre of October 41, of the Stanislavov ghetto and the Belzhets extermination camp that followed the massacre, and of the sadistic killing chief, Hans Krieger. I did not share this with my mother Lily. But that's not all. Jews were fighters as well as victims. This book records an astonishing Jewish woman, Anda Luft, who gathered a band of guerrilla fighters in the woods outside Stanislavov to ambush and kill the Nazi enemy. Anda Luft, fighting Nazis, rifle in one arm, newborn baby in the other. We'll hear her story in a future episode, but now join me at breakfast in a noisy hotel cafe with my interpreter, Svetlana. It's the morning of the 65th anniversary of Stanislavov Bloody Sunday, and we've arranged to meet the rabbi at the massacre field. Across the room, at reception, there's an elderly man, and over the booming disco music I hear him give his name. Luft. Henrik Luft. I invite him to join our table, turn on the sound recorder, and ask him to repeat his name. Henrik. Henrik. Henrik Luft. And today where do you live? In Bohovat? Holland? No, I live in Natania today. Natania? Oh, okay. He knows everything. A reporter, freelancer. I wasn't in Israel for many years. When were you born? 1930. I've lived 20 lives. I've had a high-tech business in the United States. I was uh, eight years in the Israeli army. I, you know, they call it agitated life. Is there in your family someone who... I'm trying to remember. Is it Andras Luft? Andaluft. 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 Tell me about Andaluft. Well, she was, she was my cousin, an older cousin. She worked as a chemist at the Margofis factory. She had a child with somebody, and she went into the forest with the partisans, and she got killed there. Anda is a great hero. She was killed by shooting back with a child on her arm, somewhere in the forest around here. I have also read this story. As soon as you said Luft, I thought, it's Anda, this woman. Anda, she yeah. was... Uh... I read it. Yes? Yes. It's on the internet. Oh. The last page on uh, on Stanislavov. You know why I remember. I, I, I was reading Luft and then it's she. I she. thought, goodness, it was she. And now you yeah. tell me, you it see? comes back to my mind. It was the last page, the last lines of this material on the internet. Svetlana explains the anniversary that brings us here today. And so it's 12 October, it's the, the time of the first big action. The first big action my grandmother went. Yeah, so it's today. That's why the rabbi said we're going to the, it, it takes me to the cemetery. That's, why, I'm, that's, that's, why, that's why I'm here today. Well, talk about coincidence. Did you not realize? 
talking is what Henrik Luft and I did for the next four days, some of it recorded and some not when he didn't want to speak publicly. After evading Kruger's massacre, he had an astounding escape from Bogets, the deadliest of Nazi death camps, and finally fled Europe to reach Palestine and eight years of soldiering. Luft was witty, scurrilous, sometimes trusting and sometimes suspicious of me. For some reason, he continually doubted that I was Jewish. He spoke like the old soldier he was, a veteran and hero of Israel's 1948 independence war. But something was troubling him, and it was not Krieger's bloody Sunday massacre that had brought us together on its anniversary. So what was it? On the fourth day, we were talking in Café Flamingo, and over cigarettes and endless shots of espresso, he revealed he didn't at first believe I was Jewish, because I seemed prepared to criticise Israel's occupation of Palestine. I listened to all sides. I'm ready to learn. That's why I thought you were a goy. You can't persuade Jews. He finally opened up about his pessimism. He talked of Israel's lightning victory over the Arab states in the 1967 Six-Day War. Israel now occupied huge new territories, including the whole of Palestine. An actor voices the words used by Henrik Luft in 2006. 1967 was a military victory, but a strategic defeat. It turned us into occupiers, and the occupation has brutalized us. It burdens Israel with the territories, the occupation, and the zealots. They are fanatics, not patriots. One day, if an Israeli government makes a peace deal, those who want to keep the occupied territories will have to give way. No political party will withdraw from occupied Golan or remove the Jewish settlements in the West Bank. Israel dismantled the Gaza settlements in 2005. The Gaza settlements were insupportable. Outrageous luxury, swimming pools amongst poverty. 4,000 of the 8,000 settlers were on the government payroll. And in the West Bank, settlers cut down olive trees and poisoned the wells. So, Palestinians can't leave. You've been telling me about 1948, about how you were a young soldier in Israel's War of Independence. You led the storming of a key Egyptian fort when seven previous attacks had all failed. Yes, um, I've done my beat. Now I speak my mind. No one listens. Fuck them. What should British Jews do who don't like the occupation? If it's against your conscience, it's tough. If you criticise, you're called anti-Semitic. It's blackmail. Ridiculous. Why don't you speak out? You'd be heard with respect. I will not speak. There is no point. I won't be here to see disaster. And your children? I tell them to leave. There is no hope. This was very different from what I expected to hear from a survivor of Hans Krieger's massacre and a veteran of Israel's War of Independence. What should I do with this encounter? Did Henrik Luft's bitter criticism and his pessimism even belong in my inherited family story? Stanislavov, Denar. 
2010, and Welsh television wants to film me visiting Israel and Palestine to compare my grandfather Israel Gold's vision of a land shared by Jews and Arabs in peace and friendship with the reality. I was last here in 1973, reporting the Yom Kippur War for British television. That visit ended for me with a row with my father's brother. Baruch escaped the Holocaust in Europe to settle in Palestine in 1945. He fought to establish Israel in 1948. In 1973, he furiously rejected my hope that Israel exchange lands conquered in the 1967 Six-Day War for peace with Palestine. And he instructed me to visit Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Museum, to understand why Israel will never give up conquered land. Forty years on, and I'm about to do as my uncle instructed. First, I visit more relatives of my father, pioneers in a hardline Jewish settlement deep in the West Bank. One family amongst the 700,000 Jewish settlers on Palestinian land occupied since 1967. Cousin Yaakov shows me a photograph. You hear the picture in Munich in 39 of uh, this is your grandfather, this is Meir. Yeah. That looks like my, my father. Uh, no, this is Baruch, this is Noah. Yeah, this That's is my Noah. father. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I don't believe you. Yeah. You didn't know about this book. I didn't know about the book, I didn't know about the photo, and that's incredible. Father sitting there. A unique photograph well, of my father and his father whole family as they escape Nazi Germany in 1939. And to discover this photograph, I had to come to this Jewish settlement inside the Palestinian West Bank. Then I visit the son of my Uncle Baruch. There's an Israeli flag proudly displayed on his sitting room wall. Baruch made it while still interned in Europe and then it accompanied all his military campaigns from 1942 until the 1967 Six-Day War and beyond. And he recorded all his military campaigns in Hebrew text on this flag. His son reads it out to me. The first place where he joins the Palmach, which was the foundation of the... As he describes the flag, I realized this could reveal if my uncle was involved with the 1948 ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Where is that plan for independence? It was 1948, yes. and he was part of the 8th Brigade in, on, on the Palmach. Yep. And what you mentioned before, that he took part of the foundation of the Israel Intelligence in the Israel Air Force. Later, when I translate the Hebrew and search the military archives, it is confirmed that my uncle was involved in the violent clearance of villages near Gaza in May 1948. What should I do with this inconvenient truth? Can I make programs about my mother's destroyed family and disregard my uncle's complicity in destroying Palestinian communities? It's the will of God, explains my cousin, Baruch's son. Yad Vashem, where my grandfather is commemorated in pages of testimony and the memorial to his destroyed town of Stanislavov. 
1935, my grandfather was trying to come to Palestine to live. He wrote how important it was to coexist with the Arabs. He was teaching himself English, Hebrew and Arabic. That's the kind of man he was. But he was killed before he could come. After filming, our guide confides to me that another guide was lately sacked by the Yad Vashem authorities. His crime, mentioning the view from the museum's viewing platform. The dark underground galleries of Yad Vashem, which tell the story of Europe's Holocaust, rise steadily towards a high platform bathed in sunlight, looking out over Jerusalem forest, the promised land. Beneath those trees lie the ruins of the Palestinian village of Deir Yassin, scene of a 1948 massacre by Jewish troops that caused mass Palestinian panic and flight. Itamar Shapira, the Yad Vashem guide, was not supposed to mention that to visitors. Deir Yassin was part of the villages that were part of the battlefields going up to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. Road number one during the 48 war was the main and most important uh, operation of the Zionist uh, militias. So that road opening it up included uh, massacres of Palestinian villages. I told him about my visit. I went to Yad Vashem because that is where my grandfather and his family are commemorated in pages of testimony. So where else should I go to mourn my destroyed family except there? And that's where my guide told me about you and told me how you had been dismissed. You had referred to the village of Deir Yassin, which, of course, I knew. It's the only massacre of Palestinians that has ever been apologised by Israel. Ben-Gurion wrote to Abdullah of Jordan to say, I'm really sorry. Um, uh, Abdullah wasn't very impressed. So I was absolutely amazed that it was so close to Yad Vashem. The massacre of Deir Yassin specifically was considered to be a very, very successful Zionist operation. The massacre there made such a big impact on people that people fled because of it from all the villages around without the need of actually occupying them and kicking them out. Deir Yassin is a symbol that uh, is not supposed to be talked about in, um, in Yad Vashem. Uh, but if it is talked about, it is spoken about in exactly that, that way. They say, yes, there were some, some horrible things that happens in every war. We have to remember that. We just came out of a Holocaust. And, uh, you know, this one little thing happened, and uh, we're sorry for that. And it's about 100 people that died for nothing. It's a crime, and we acknowledge that, and we take care. And we are a democratic and responsible country. There is no place almost in Israel-Palestine that wasn't a destroyed Palestinian village. And there's also many, many massacres that took place. Of course, the ethnic cleansing is not only the pushing out of people or having them flee, but mainly, the most important part, is the denial of the return. I went up to the viewing platform at the end of the gallery and there were some recent uh, recruits, young recruits to the uh, Israeli army. They were coming on their tour uh, in their uh, military uniform, coming on their tour of Yad Vashem and they were all gathered at the platform 
looking out over Jerusalem forest, and I now knew that in that forest are the ruins of Deir Yassin. And I knew that what they are seeing, what the young soldiers are seeing, is trees, the Jerusalem forest. They do not see Deir Yassin. And to me, that was a travesty of my grandfather's hope, my grandfather's vision, that he should be commemorated only in one place in the world, at Yad Vashem. If I can stand here and um, and speak about how 70 years ago people killed Jews and no one cared, and not care about what is happening now with neighbors of mine going out to planes and actually massacre thousands, if I can speak up against this, I, um, I shouldn't be speaking at all. It's selective victimhood drawn on ethnic lines to have such a place of memorial positioned where it is. Well, one of the points Itamar Shapira made to me was there's hardly anywhere in Israel-Palestine where you wouldn't be within reach of a ruined exactly, Palestinian exactly, village. Yeah. It's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to be in such a sensitive place as Yad Vashem, mm. the purpose for which is simply to remember the past and to mourn the past, and then to be told, but look, over there, there's some of the past that you aren't supposed to especially, remember. And that's the thing. Yeah, especially from um, a viewing platform where you're being specifically encouraged to look out. But I think here's the the challenge making this program making this series some people make programs about the holocaust and other people make programs about the palestinian catastrophe the nakba and very often those who want to know about one don't want to know about the other mm -hmm. so this series is an experiment in crossing boundaries to connect those two histories and what we're trying to say is, listen to both stories together. Listen to how they connect. Can we hear the opposite side? Can we learn something? Absolutely. I don't know the answer. Absolutely. It's a very necessary experiment. It cannot be avoided. But I can't tell you whether it will succeed. The reason why they must be kept separate is not only political, but it's this obsession that humanity has with the monopoly on on pain and on victimhood and that needs to be let go I, of i think that's a huge and important point asha because the thing about pain about suffering about tragedy is that it divides people it doesn't necessarily make the victims and the survivors any more sensitive to the pain and the struggles and the tragedies of other people you would think it should but it mm -hmm. doesn't and it probably doesn't for very human reasons exactly the thing that should be bringing us together you'd think on paper that's how it would work it tends not to be the case my grandfather israel gold did not survive to reach Palestine and grow old in Israel. He was killed in a field in Europe, leaving his memory and his dreams. Our relations with the Arabs. Try getting along in peace and friendship. It's likely to be important. Thanks for joining us for Keys, a troubled inheritance an investigation by Mike Joseph into genocide, ethnic cleansing, and one family. This was the first episode. For information on the whole series, 
and upcoming episodes, please visit mikejoseph.wales.com.